Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter Three. I don't care if you're dying. I'm not delaying this jump. I'm not asking you to, Carmi, I replied in what passed for my most deferential voice. I just wanted you to know that I'm waiting on a crosspatch for gunnery that should be coming in from a station-bound freighter named Buzzer. It's for the lantern guns. They worked fine for Ben. He never tested that, remember? On the contrary, he tested them many times. Not in battle, he didn't, and a good thing, too. My simulations show a 40% chance of any single inbound missile getting past the software-controlled defense routine. If someone sends an actual salvo our way, Carmi, you can bet your credit will get hit if we're only using the basic package. You've been a pest about this, Ejok, I'm sorry to say, put in Aylorada. That guy turned out never to speak to me except to criticize, and I was having a hard time warming up to him. Carmi didn't seem to go as far as that, but she wasn't liking my constant requests this late in the outbound journey. I just wanted to grab all the opportunities I could for the improvement of my station, but the last download dumped directly into the archive by default. That required library authorization to access, something I didn't seem to have. Apparently, good old Ben had never needed it, so they couldn't understand why I did. Fine. But now they'd have to watch for the next file from Buzzer, dig it out of the archive, and drag it over to my account. Yes, it was inconvenient on the final approach to a star jump, but that's how they had it set up, and they were pissed at me for it? I was walking a fine line between pulling this thing together and denouncing their late great golden boy. I decided that, mediocre authoring skills notwithstanding, my autocoder had flagged a huge list of errors in the guy's work as it turned out, Ham's greatest asset had been his personality. His gunnery skills hardly deserved the name. If Griselda had ever actually been attacked, he would have had to charm the missiles out of the sky. But if you went by everyone's inflated opinion of the man, he just might have been able to do it. I'd had to put out an emergency call to any and all licensed gunners in system to get the basic equipment-specific software I needed, and only three had had the coding skills, free time, and inclination to help. Griselda was the butt of many jokes in the ship defense community right then, but I could certainly live with that if I could live through a skirmish with an improved system. The fact was, this hobby-cobbled fire control setup was beginning to look pretty good. Since it was basically having all its software rewritten, the assorted parts and equipment had the opportunity to cancel out each other's weaknesses and play off their strengths. For example... The missile controls had crystalline processors that were capable of lightning-fast data grabs from active and passive sensors. Normally, if they were part of an OEM system, you'd have had firmware installed that sifted out all the extraneous info and pushed forward the relevant attack data. 
Instead, I was dumping all this real-time information into a helm control deck that the mad scientist who'd originally whipped this equipment together had wired in to act as a Combat Analysis Computer, or CAC. That made no sense in a traditional system, but because it was really Helm, it could display all the sensor data at once as a picture of the outside conditions. When I was done, I'd be able to pipe the CAC display into an old but reliable set of surfing and entertainment goggles of my own, which had a perfect 360 field of vision and much better sound than my jawbone could provide. It would be a completely accessible, real-time, 3D view of the combat situation. I'd be able to zoom in to each aspect of the battle, change its viewpoint in all three axes, and, in theory, understand it better. Some early sims, anyway, based on recorded data, were really encouraging. None of this would work with a live stream, though, without cross-patches, which were needed for the conpipe to do its job. The things that did work worked fine, and I was excited to see each incremental step come online. I was at the stage now in my sims where I could target, track, fire, and use in-flight controls of the missiles. Those darn Melkoch lantern guns were turning into a stubborn set of twins, though. There wasn't anyone in system who could provide a fresh code tree for them, or who would do so. Some gunners seemed to think I was some kind of newbie goofball and started filtering out my dialogues. I cracked the software restrictions of that backup gunnery program with a breaker application I'd found on the local nets and poured through the sim transcripts for the previous few tests Ben Ham had run until I found the relevant strings that corresponded to system calls. This allowed me to pinpoint all the important elements that any new code would need to utilize. I worked with this myself to no avail, all the while querying each new ship that came in. Buzzer finally proved to have a woman at the trigger with a charitable heart and some darn fine coding chops. She was doing a forensic reconstruction of the data strings for me and then writing on the fly what the conpipe seemed to require out of the lantern gun feeds. I owed her big time, especially since I couldn't offer financial compensation. There was a degree of esprit de corps left in the Union, though, at least with the gunners from more active centers of the Alliance, and I put together an old-fashioned debt card obligating Griselda to help Buzzer in the future sometime, should that ship ever need it. Oh, it was a little thing, considering that the two ships might never even cross paths again, let alone when Buzzer was in a jam, but it was the best I could do for free. Carmi approved it, after some thought. Apparently, Griselda had once held a debt card itself from some helpful action in years past by its previous owners to a particular superhauler. This proved mighty handy during the big engine refit, because said hauler just happened to jump in when they were getting started with the work. That ship sent over a team of engineers and grunts to assist, and Bin Roggenston told me they'd made a massive difference in the operation. Carmi knew the value of debt cards, therefore, and understood the obligations involved. Though difficult to enforce legally, ships that reneged on their debt card obligations gained a reputation hardly better than that of a pirate, and could find cancelled contracts and tariffs suddenly doubled wherever it went. Social and economic ostracization might well cripple a ship, and since the rep naturally followed the ship itself more than the owners, it could be hard to even sell one with a history like that. I didn't think the good captain liked me at this point, considering how pushy I'd been, but I think she liked what I was doing. Aylareda had been irritated, I heard, but debt cards are a captain's call. For his part, when I mentioned it, Ben Roggenston simply nodded, as if it was just how things got done in the galaxy. 
He explained that it was not at all uncommon in the Empire for ships to be holding dozens of debt cards at a time. They were almost a form of currency over there, and a ship that possessed a lot of them was considered wealthy indeed. My time wasn't exactly my own, what with Small and his people needing food, clean clothes and linens, and other assorted calls for my attention. It was the ship itself, though, that sucked up much of the day. Doing the floors with a cleaner buffer bot was new to me, and this one had a stupid issue that made it run only in a straight line no matter what setting it was on. When I brought it down to engineering, Sherry told me the main board needed replacing, and only the manufacturer would have one. I was stuck following the thing around whenever I used it and physically turning it towards the areas it missed. A real mop would have been so much faster, but the offs didn't like having wet floors while we had passengers aboard, so I just had to deal with it. To keep the gunnery work moving along, I found myself dashing away to my station at odd times. I bustled in and out to receive transmissions from other gunners, to start and stop diags, and to test code. Then, after serving meals and doing cleanups, I'd put in a few solid hours of debugging work and running sims with any new code that came in. Whenever I took a break, I was down in engineering, partly because it was just plain fascinating and partly because it was the only place I really felt welcome. Ben Roggenston was tireless in explaining his setup, and I enjoyed his and Sherry's comfortable interplay. He would bluster and she would mock, and it was nice to be somewhere Ben Ham had not been able to reach. Sherry laughingly told me, in fact, that the guy had put the moves on her when she'd first come aboard, and when rebuffed, had gotten nasty. Feeling disempowered because she was unfamiliar with the relationships and politics of the ship just yet, she complained to her boss rather than beat the guy down herself. In turn, Ben Roggenston cornered Ham alone in the galley one shift and told him a long, creepy story about how, many years before, aboard a destroyer in the Empire, an officer who had raped a non-com was found scattered all over the ship. He held a vibrasaw in his hand the whole time he spoke. Ham never bothered her thereafter, nor, in fact, spoke to either one of them very much again. I also found out Ham had kinda sorta been with Rena for over a year before his death, and that she had been crazy for him. He liked to roam on his own whenever the ship was docked, though, so no one but she believed he was loyal. While this was the behavior of a heel, and he wasn't admired for it, the crew did seem to think he was good at his job, his charm buying him light years of slack. By all accounts, he was excellent with the passengers. The frozen kind were always happy to see his smiling face when they woke up, and the conscious ones loved to chat with him for hours on end. I was the only one aboard who really knew defensive systems, so I was the only one to see him as an incompetent in that arena. But to be fair, Ham hadn't been formally trained, and he did try his best to make the station work. For a while, it had felt like I was competing with a beloved ghost, this impossible guy I'd never met who was somehow better than me at everything I tried to do. After Sherry's story, though, I began to see him as just another shiftless opportunist. Somehow this allowed me to be more charitable to his memory. Actually, that's a lie. I still hated him. Ten minutes until star jump, folks. Everything is looking good. Passengers are to be seated and buckled in at this time. Crew members are to be at their stations. Repeat, we are at ten minutes. Major ship movements during mealtime seemed to be a rule around here, as it was smack in the middle of breakfast when we were approaching the jump. 
We decided to hustle the process along so that everything was loaded up and ready to serve. Rena and I worked together to warm, then stack the passenger meals onto one of the carts. I'd become mortally afraid of those blasted things, one of them having tipped over completely during the previous day while I was bringing back a load of coffee cups. Thank the powers for high-impact plastic. Rena laughed at my only partially mock horror when I mentioned this, and it marked some kind of transition since it was the first time I'd heard her do so. She was still grieving, but she was beginning to acknowledge the outside universe again. The comm buzzed for me then, and it was Carmi. Just letting you know that we received your file from Buzzer, and I've transmitted our acknowledgement of the debt. I hope it's worth it, Ejok. It is. I don't have time to test it, but this was a last-minute polish, second draft, so to speak. The first one works as is, but my counterpart on Buzzer wanted to clear up some bugs. Gunnery Station officially thanks you, Captain. She snorted at that and told us to prepare for jump. We did a quick check-in with Small and his people. They'd gone through this with Griselda once already on the first leg of the trip, and were all in comfy chairs, strapped down without a hitch or complaint. Rena and I then waited in the galley. In another minute, the universe collapsed down into the pit of my stomach, while time stretched out beyond measure. This was a familiar sensation that was, at once, both disconcerting and comforting. Some jumps are much harder than others, depending upon a number of factors, but this one was a breeze. In fact, the relative discomfort was over so quickly, I wondered if something was wrong. Transition complete, came Carmi's calm voice from the PA. We are in jump space. Passengers are free to move about. Crew may resume their duties. Oh, and a quick reminder to the officers and to Mr. Folks that we have a meeting in my office in one hour. Thank you, everyone. Captain out. Ugh, Rena commented as we poured out drinks and prepared for delivery. That will be money issues again. I was wondering about that. Have you guys been sweating the budget? Well, not me. I mean, we always get paid on time. But before this charter came through, they were talking about anchoring for a while. I don't know how they would have covered docking fees, but it almost happened. It's just those darned engines, she added with a shake of her head. The engines? But they were free, I mean, so to speak, and they're very efficient. Yeah, and big, too. Oversized military stuff. They had to expand engineering to get them to fit. I wasn't signed aboard yet, but Candy says they cut into the main cargo bay in order to make room. We lost one-third of our volume down there to those things. Well, now it all fell into place. Ben Roggenston had described the refit to me in exquisite detail, but the impact on the bottom line hadn't been part of the story. Naturally, a smaller hold meant less cargo and less profit per jump. Griselda saved on fuel or time when needed, but the loss of freight space meant operating at a financial loss, too. They hadn't put out much hard credit for the overhaul, maybe, but they'd sure been paying for it ever since. That gave me an idea right then, but I needed to do some research before bringing it up to the officers. And anyway, it just seemed prudent to focus on my job for a while before making any wild suggestions. Any more wild suggestions. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail.
The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care. 